This is episode number 255 of the Rising Man Podcast with Simon Smart. Don't confuse the destination with the practice. Welcome back, Rising Man family. Thank you for joining me here today. My name is Jetty Azuma, and I got another amazing guest to share with you here on the Rising Man Podcast. Today's guest is Simon Smart. From training personnel prepping for deployments into the global war on terror to mentoring men under the Warrior Protocol brand, Simon has refined a unique blend of masculine leadership tools. With a wide range of training in physical, mental, and spiritual practices, Simon has contributed to the culture of training boys and men for over 22 years. He recently reclaimed his time freedom and is now 100% focused on building better men with his understandings of traditional masculinity, human optimization, leadership, and Eastern wisdom. In this episode, Simon and I discussed a deeper definition of masculine leadership, why the worst F word that exists is fault, the mistakes fathers make trying to turn our sons into the best versions of us, and how the philosophy of radical ownership will change the culture of any team or organization. Without further ado, Simon Smart. Rising Man family, I've got another wonderful man joining me here today, Simon Smart, coming in from Tucson. My brother, great to connect with you, man. Thanks for being here. Uh, I'm happy to be here as well. I think uh, you and I just had a quick off-camera off chat, and uh, I think we're going to have a great conversation today. We have a lot in common, similar interests, so uh, let's go, man. Let's get started. Let's rock, man. Well, n- without wasting any time, I always like to start with this question. What does it mean to be a man to you? Well, isn't that the question of the day? Um, so let, let me caveat that a little bit. Uh, there are many cultures, many directions in this universe we'll share. And I don't want to be the guy who tries to tell anyone else what to do, how to live, who to be. So I always will say uh, the best definition for what a man is, is the definition that man can come up with for himself. Uh, because I'm probably not doing it all right. You're probably not doing it all right. And there's probably a bunch of layers of things that we're missing. So as soon as we try to become the, uh, the arbiters of what a man is, and is not, we start to uh, instantly lose that battle. Uh, having said that, I think there are some basics, uh, basic foundations. It's just like when you learn a martial art, um, that you go through a phase of, of learning the basics of the martial art. Uh, later on in your martial arts career, you begin to be able to jam a little bit and take your own body shape and your own emotionality into account in terms of how you move. Uh, but in the beginning, you got to learn the basics. So the basics are being able to protect yourself, being able to protect the people around you. Uh, that can occur, obviously, on a physical level, but there are emotional levels of protection. There are spiritual levels of protection. Uh, that's important. Uh, being able to provide, um, that often means financially, uh, that can also mean um, a bunch of other levels as well. So those are important. Uh, kind of when I, when I look at the model of manhood that I like to run, Jetty, uh, I kind of look at four quadrants. So you've got the, uh, the protector and the provider, that's two. Uh, I also think there's a, a patriarch level in there. And I know that's an, a, an unpopular term in today's world, but all that means is a masculine leader. Uh, so the ability to be a leader is in there too. And then the final piece, which I think Western society likes to um, ignore, is is the priest. I think every man ought to be, in his own way, a connection to the infinite, a connection to the universe, a connection to God. And uh, that's that's important. I think if you're missing that piece, you're potentially missing 
the part of the whole. So if you take the protector, the provider, the patriarch, and the priest, and uh, do your best efforts to try to explore those areas in yourself and bring those pieces of yourself into the world so that you can share that with others, I think you're on the right path. Mm-hmm. I love that answer, man. And I want to dig a little bit deeper into what you said about protector and provider. Cause I know in, in my own journey as uh, you know, I got married when I was, I had just turned 27. Uh, we got married right after my 27th birthday. And I remember coming into that relationship with a very specific understanding of what being a provider meant. Cause I watched my dad be a provider for my family, my entire life, especially when my mom got sick and he stepped into that role. I remember him even saying to my mom, I got it covered. You stay home, you rest, take care of yourself, take care of the kids. So when there, when the opportunity struck for me to do that, that's exactly what I did. And it took me a few years to really understand there was so much more to provide than just financial stability and security. That's really important. But I wanted to hear a little bit, you go a little bit deeper into that from your perspective. What, what else is there for a man to provide for his partner, for his family and beyond? Yeah, um, I think the biggest thing beyond the finances is um, a safe space and masculine leadership. Uh, a lot of people hear masculine leadership and they think that it's about being the boss because they've probably had some bad leaders in their life. They've had some bad managers. And so their entire uh, idea of what being a leader is, is someone who tells you what to do. Uh, to me, masculine leadership is not about telling anyone what to do. In fact, in fact that's probably the antithesis. Uh, masculine leadership is about providing a structure within which people can make good decisions. So uh, I'll give you a good example um, of leadership without being the bossy manager. So everyone should build their own relationship with their partner. In my relationship, we are uh, very polarized. I'm the masculine, uh, get shit done, take care of business guy. Uh, she likes to craft and she wants to have some babies and she's very feminine. So when we go on a date, uh, the last thing I would ever do is put all the pressure on her of deciding where we should go and what we should do. Because, and again, this is not true for everyone, but what I found is that for a lot of women, making decisions is a little stressful. It's a little exhausting. What I found for me is that I enjoy making decisions and it doesn't take any energy out of me at all. In fact, I'm often invigorated by it. So before we go on a date, I will often tell her uh, what time to be ready, uh, what vibe to prepare for, and basically that'll help her know what to wear. And that's it. So I'm not telling her what to do, but I'm providing leadership. I'm providing structure. On this, on this day, at this time, we're going to go have a great time, wear this. Uh, that's how we run our relationship. Um, she really likes that. So that's the, that's the kind of leadership I think a lot of men would benefit from providing. I think that a lot of their women would enjoy that once they got used to it. But a lot of men are raised to be almost afraid to take that role because it'll be seen as sexist, overbearing, controlling. Uh, society's done a lot to scare men away, uh, rightly so from being overly controlling, but we've thrown the baby out with the bathwater and now men are also afraid to be the leader that a lot of women, women secretly crave. And as you probably know, Jetty, the knock-on effect from that is that when there's a void of leadership, someone has to step into it, that someone is going to be the woman. And then the woman has to become the boss of the home. Uh, the man will start complaining that she's bossy. Well, she's bossy because you advocated being the boss. 
right? You forced her to step into that role because someone had to. Uh, so not provisioning those kinds of things creates all kinds of chaos and disharmony and disconnect in the masculine-feminine relationship with the mother and the father, which then is inflicted on the children and the economics of the home and the community. So as men, yeah, there's a lot of things we have to provide beyond that foundation of, uh, of, of a shelter and food and, and warmth. Yeah. I love that you've said masculine leadership, I think five times already since we started. And that's something that I can really relate to. And uh, going a little bit deeper into that, I'm a very visual person. And when I think of masculine leadership, basically my version of what you're describing, I imagine the person who's got their feet dug in the deepest in the room, right? The person who, and, and it might change depending on who the constellation of people is that I'm with, who who's the most grounded, the most centered person. Uh, the person whose heartbeat is the slowest when shit goes down. Who's, who's the one who's capable, like you said before, of creating a container for people to make good decisions. Cause that's so much of what happens in the chaos of life, whether we're talking about trying to get the kids out the door to school or dealing with a terrorist attack, right? It's our body is going through this response to chaos and who is holding that center point of, Hey, let's slow things down for a second. Let's be strategic. What do we need to do? What needs to happen? That's what I think of when it comes to masculine leadership. It sounds like that's what you're pointing to as well. I think that's a massive part of it. You, you can't be a leader if you're caught up in the chaos of the moment. Uh, it's the leader's role to be the one to be able to step back. You know, years and years ago, the, one of the ways I ended up here in the U.S. was um, I had a little contract work with the U.S. government, and we were training guys for um, deploying to Iraq and Afghanistan. So I spent a lot of time uh, working through concepts around uh, physiological, psychological response to combat conditions. And a big part of that work is uh, learning how to control your nerves. Because when everything is hitting the fan and everyone is panicking, uh, the survival of the team is going to require one man to be able to take a deep breath. Like you say, ground, slow down, zoom out, look at the tactical situation and make really sound decisions. It's the same in business. You know, when things go wrong in a management team, guess what the conversation always seems to become? It becomes a conversation of whose fault was it? How did this happen? Who can we blame? Right. I, that drives me crazy. And I've been lucky. I've, I've always been the guy in that room who can say, you know, grab myself and say, who cares? Like, who cares? We got a problem. The only thing I ever want to hear discussed in the next half hour is the solution later once we've dealt with it maybe we can look at you know what what procedures we can put in place to avoid it happening again but fault to me that's the real f word fault is like a, a child's obsession because it's never no no situation in the history of the planet has ever been solved by finding who was a fault ever it's simply a ego game of ungrounded people who want to pass the, the blame around because they're so afraid that it might land in their lap and they might get blamed. Who cares? Solutions. Uh, that's our role in the home as well. Uh, it's our natural biological blessing as men that we have a little bit of a cooler head under pressure. The brain is built a little bit differently. Uh, our, our heart is bigger. We can pump more blood. We should be able to deal with more chaos and, and be centered. Um, you know, I, I, it's just the way it is. We're, we're designed for it. It's our role. And yeah. So how do you get grounded? Right. I mean, I'm sure you guys do a lot of breath work, uh, a lot of meditation. 
Uh, a lot of my work comes from martial arts and uh, about 20 years studying Taoist uh, alchemy and, and meditation. And man, first thing I do every morning is I'm getting up, sitting outside and um, waking up my body. The first thing I'm doing is rooting myself down into the earth, slowing down my rhythm, getting connected. Uh, you know, the earth, the earth has a much slower frequency and rhythm than the human realm, if we want to put it that way. And so, yeah, the more you can send your energy down there and then bring that energy up, man, the more, the more rooted you are. Uh, and that, that begins to entrain everyone else in the room. Like you said, the slowest heartbeat, uh, the guy who's calm. When everybody's panicking, everyone's panicking. When everybody's panicking but one guy and he's centered and he can start to speak with a voice that is deep and resonant and measured and slow and begin to ask the right questions to get the focus back, you can take charge of that team. You can, you can salvage defeat uh, from, you know, and, and create a win. I mean, to me, that's... The, the reason that sports managers get paid so much, most of it is for that halftime conversation when they're down. That's the whole job. Yeah. Anybody can give a speech to a group of guys who are, you know, X number of points up. That's easy. But turning around a team has just walked off with their heads hung low, feeling, you know, that, that feeling of impending doom and turning them around in 10 or 15 minutes to walk on like winners and start to make things change. That's leadership. And yeah. That's the thing. I love that you brought that example in. Cause that's something I've been really studying a lot lately is cause, uh, is the, is the trend, the different uh, ways that leadership shows up in, in other domains of society. And that's such a great one to look at. Uh, I think of the head coaches of football teams in the national football league, and they don't get down to X's and O's. They're, they're not making decisions on how the offense is operating or how the defense is run. That's, that's why they hire other coaches and staff members. Their job mm -hmm. is the pulse, the culture, the, grounded voice in that moment that is so necessary. And you're exactly right. That's why they're paid the most is because of how valuable and important that position is. And, and not everybody's made or built to, to lead at that level. That's actually a question I wanted to ask you. Do you, do you believe that everybody is a leader? Are there certain people that are more built for that style of leadership or, or um, I guess being able to hold center for more people or a greater, larger community than others? I think it's both. I think some people are born with a little bit of talent for it. Mm -hmm. uh, I think upbringing has a lot to do with it, uh, but it's trainable, you know, and most people, most people are, are in leadership situations that are not life and death. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's not, the, it's not the most high pressure thing in the universe to me being, being a leader is a couple of things. Number one, it's being able to see where we're going ultimately, right? It's the person who can most visually see the target and consistently keep the team moving towards it. Secondly, when, when the team is moving in the wrong direction, it's being able to course correct. And sometimes that's a team level, right? We talked about, you know, the, the, the sports analogy, but I guarantee you that the, the best sports managers on the planet, not only can they give a great talk to their team, but as the guys file past them out onto the field, um, they know exactly which sentence to say to each guy. Mm. And it's, I bet you it's a different sentence, different pat on the back for each guy, but they, they, they know their team well enough. And so I, I'd say the, the most useful piece there is probably um, knowing yourself. Mm. Because, you know, what I found is the more deeply we know ourselves, the easier it is to understand other people. Mm -hmm. OK, 
okay, if I was him and I thought the way about the world that he thinks and I felt the way that he feels now, what would I say to myself to make myself feel better? 99% of the time, that's what he needs to hear. We're not that different, right? So the people who are bad leaders are the ones who don't know themselves, the ones who hide from all their shadows and all their darkness and all their impulses. Uh, the more you go into that work of, um, you know, the less shiny stuff, the ugly stuff inside of yourself, uh, really going deep into how, how flawed like I am uh, and all the weird little idiosyncrasies that I have, uh, the more I do that, the more I understand other people have them too. And, and that's how we can connect. And yeah, that's a big part of leadership is that, that inner work. I think that's something that gets overlooked a lot is how people who struggle with leadership, how much they're actually just still preoccupied with themselves. How, how still rooted they are in their own insecurities that makes it that makes them incapable of empathizing to someone else's experience. Absolutely. And empathize is a great way to put it. Another a, a really closely related example here is the ability to read body language. Mm-hmm. Right. I'm 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 pretty embodied, like I say, 20 something years of martial arts and a lot of stuff before that. I, I can feel my body really well. So when I see someone else in a particular posture or doing a particular thing, I can imagine myself into that posture instantly. And then I notice how that feels. And then I often know how they feel based on the little thing they're doing. Mm -hmm. But for people who are not in touch with their own body, it becomes really hard to read body language. Uh, Sometimes the best they can do is just an academic level where they've read the books and looked at the pictures and they'll say, oh, he's doing this thing. That must mean that. Uh, oh, his arms are crossed. He's defensive. Well, sometimes, not always. It depends on context. Look at his breathing pattern. Look at his face. Kind of feet are. Uh, you got to feel that stuff. So, uh, yeah, I think leadership is the same. The more you know yourself, the more you can connect with yourself and imagine yourself in the circumstances your your team member is in. Uh, the easier it is, and then trusting yourself to be probably right. Probably right. So, what do you mean by that? Oh, like trusting your gut, maybe you mean? Like yeah, going with that? So, sometimes when you're coaching someone or leading someone, you know, mm-hmm. you think you know, you might know what they need to hear. Uh, you never know until you say it. And it could be wrong. But that's another place where, I mean, that's a big failing of leaders, right? Is they know what they need to say, but they're fucking afraid to say it, so they don't. So the moment is missed. The opportunity is never grabbed. And the correction is never made. Uh, the, the, the other massive important part of leadership is being willing to be the one who's, who's going to say the thing. Mm. And that comes, that comes back to you know, our original topic around masculinity. If you're not extremely confident physically, emotionally, spiritually, when it comes to conflict, you can't speak truth. You can't say what needs to be said. You can't do the thing that needs to be said. Instead, you're going to go hide in a corner with all the other boys and be useless. Mm-hmm. Yeah, man. I, I love what you shared there for, and cl- thanks for clarifying what you meant by that. I, I want to circle back to what you were sharing about um, embodied. Cause I, I really understand that. And I've got my a background in martial arts myself and been an athlete my whole life, but I often find that you can, you can, you can tell when somebody's not in their body, when somebody hasn't really occupied or understands the the full occupancy of their body. Personally, I think one big part of that is giving ourselves enough experience in life to have a full reference for all the different ways that a human might feel all the different places that a human might go. And so 
whether it's martial arts or it's uh, the spiritual path, all of these different ways to experience that, I, that's what I hear and what you're sharing. I think it's super valuable. But to try and put it into words for somebody who maybe isn't there yet or is earlier in that journey of embodiment, how would you describe that? Because it's it's like one of those things, it's a feeling, right? We're talking about instincts here. How do you put that into words that somebody can understand who may not be there? Well, I'll, I'll give you my model. Um, when it comes to psychological development, right? We have this concept of shadow work. You know, you can go back to Jung and look at what the shadow is. The shadow is the rejected parts of ourselves. So it's all the parts of our personality that we ignore or don't realize exist. So there are all these parts of ourselves that are in shadow and we can't feel them, connect them, contact them, or use them. That makes sense? Mm-hmm. Uh, the body's the same way. And there's actually a really interesting uh, holographic mirror in the body for the shadow of psycho- psychology. Uh, for a lot of people, there are some parts of their body they can feel. Like if they lift up their hand and they look at their hand, they can feel their hand. But if you pay deep attention, you might notice that there are parts of your spine you can't actually feel. You put your mind there and it's a big blank spot. Uh, a lot of people in their uh, solar plexus or their lower guts, they can't feel things. Uh, a lot of people, um, they can't send their mind down into their feet and feel their root. So at that level, it's simply nervous system awareness. Uh, and you, know, you can look at that from a pure Western medical science. Uh, you, know, you haven't used those nerve endings enough and connected them to the brain. So you're unaware of parts of your body. And, and as you begin to work on embodiment, sending your mind awareness down into parts of your body that you had forgotten about, it's interesting that a lot of psychological stuff can come up as well. So there's this, uh, this mind-body connection when it comes to shadow work. Um, the other part of it is that most people are not physically active their whole lives. They sit down in chairs. Um, they don't move regularly. Well, that, ha- well, that means is the, the, the fascia gets really tight. And when the fascia gets tight, it begins to inhibit not just your movement, but the movement of all the uh, intracellular fluids in your body that are supposed to carry electrical signals and things. So the body uh, awareness starts to die down. You know, the volume gets turned down until people are just walking around uh, as a brain looking out two eyes or two holes in the skull. That's their entire awareness of the world. Uh, the real value, and you know, I know you know about this from, from your work and from ceremony, when you get really deep into your body, you then can also discover that awareness can move out from the body into the ground, uh, into the trees, into the sky, into other people. Uh, that's, you know, that's what a lot of people spend their entire lives meditating to, to experience is that, that oneness with the whole. Uh, but if you're not one with your body, good luck connecting with the universe. Ain't going to happen. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit more about that sense where, where our sense can go beyond our bodies. Cause when I hear you describe it, there's a, there's a recognition. I'm like, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. And I've learned how to trust that sense within myself. I can, I can, I know what somebody is feeling across from me. Sometimes it's not so clear, but a lot of the times I know exactly what's there. And I've built in this way for me to, to hear what I want to say or how I want to express myself and trust it. So I know exactly what you're talking about, but I want to really go deeper into this. Cause I think there's a lot of folks who are still haven't, it's, it's all conceptual for them. Like you said, it's, it's a, it's an idea in their mind of being able to sense in that way. So speaking about that ability to really sense where somebody else is coming from, because I think we all understand why that could be so useful, but accessing that and 
and nurturing that sense in ourselves. How to do it. Yeah. Even just the experience of it too, man. I think that's something that a lot of people need to hear more about. Yeah. So there's a lot of traditions for this. Uh, a lot of this is considered the more advanced levels of martial arts. In some of the Chinese internal martial arts, they start with this stuff early. Uh, in a lot of the Japanese arts, it's considered um, oral tradition, things that you're shared from one-to-one -one from your teacher. Uh, but it's, it's not the hardest thing in the world. You know, uh, the first thing you do is you begin to quiet your mind. The next thing you do is begin to slow your breath and just pay attention to your breathing. Pay attention to the expansion and contraction of your belly, your pelvic floor, uh, the back of your ribs. Start there. And then as you slow your breathing cycle and do a really good full body breathing cycle, pay attention to what else is expanding. Oh, my armpits expand and contract. Oh, my fingers feel like they get tighter and looser as I breathe. Oh, when I'm trying to go to sleep and I'm breathing deeply, I feel my skull. I can hear it. I can hear my skull shifting as I breathe. Huh. Never noticed that before. So just paying attention, I think, is the first part of it. Uh, there's a lot of people who try meditation. And I think meditation has been taught really badly in the West for the past 30 or 40 years. People have this idea that meditation is, okay, sit down, don't think. And by the way, don't think about not thinking. And if you think about not trying to think about not thinking, that's also wrong. Uh, well, you're <laughs> fucked. There's no way to do it. Right? And so people sit down for, you know, 5, 10, 20 minutes, an hour, feeling like a failure, going crazy, trying not to think, and give up. It's a real common thing in the spiritual realm for me that I see that people confuse the destination with the practice. Um, so one of the consequences of a long-term meditation practice is your mind becomes very, very quiet. That doesn't mean you start that way. There are other practices that are supposed to be taught instead of that. So I've, I've shown pretty advanced meditators this recently, and they've been blown away. Uh, most people know you have to warm up before lifting weights. Most people don't realize there's a way to warm up for meditation. And so, you know, I can show guys that and we'll do a 10 minute warm up, and then they drop straight into deep meditation rather than having that 10, 20 minute wrestling with themselves uh, game that people play. Um, so all those things are important, but ultimately it comes down to the, the number one most important skill for a warrior is awareness. Awareness of the living moment, awareness of yourself and the universe around you, which includes the sky and the ground and the wind and the people. And just seeing, man, how much can I take in? How much can I notice? Okay, I'm noticing this much. Can I turn the brightness up 10%? How does that feel? Um, I, this, is, this is a lot of stuff I love to teach. And then we get into things like bioenergetics and opening up all the fascia and the extracellular matrix in the body through breath and energy work and, and movements and moving emotion through the body. Uh, it's, it's beautiful work. I, I wish it was something everyone was, uh, was interested in. I think we'd have a lot more calm, centered people who were actually walking a path and taking care of each other. And, you know, maybe one of those things that we're just a generation ahead of it. You know, I, I truly think that, you know, and it's not, for me, it's not an, an ego trip or anything. I, I think that that's how many different shifts in humanity as a, as a large population of people have happened is 
that there's there's the outliers right in the beginning it's like the crazy ones right the crazy people who saw a different way of of being in on this planet and in relationship with each other and then a few more generations down the line that becomes the norm uh i i don't know how we're going to survive if we don't start to prioritize coming into a better relationship with ourselves and being able to do that with children i know you said you have a son i have an eight-year-old son i've got a four and a half year old daughter and I, i'm witnessing it every day and and in my own way trying to educate and and mentor them and be thankfully they came into this world in their body i feel like my job has been to keep them there <laughs> to encourage them to keep up that relation with their senses in their body yeah you know i'm uh, i hope we're one or two generations away sometimes i worry we're 20 generations too late mm-hmm. uh but you know i'll tell you this is something literally happening right now in my life I got my son some drums for his birthday wanted to get into drumming, drumming some electronic drums. And uh, he's, he's like my father. He's a real engineer, very, very smart. You know, he'll, he'll read the Lego manual and then just make the thing and not refer to the manual. So his spatial visualization is unbelievable. Uh, quite often, you know, if I'm trying to build something that came from, you know, Ikea or whatever, I'll just give it to him because he enjoys it. And he'll get it done in quarter of the time. And I'll, I'll probably stab myself in the thigh with a screw, screwdriver or something <laughs> the way through. But uh, point being, I was watching him drum the other day. And he's technically good, right? He's, uh, he's got a computer program. He's drumming alongside. He's getting the timing, working the lens and the feet in the right timing. And he's getting it right. But I'm looking at him. And I'm sensing. And I'm like, he's drumming from his head. His timing's in his head. And you probably know the best drummers, man, feel it in their body. And the rhythm's in the spine and the hips and boom, 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 and it just comes out. Like it's expressive. From the, the, the drums are expressed from the core along the limbs to, to, to the instrument. And so I started talking to him about, hey, can you get more in your body? Is that possible? Can you get you know, some, some movement? Funny thing, he's never really shown a lot of interest in the music that I like. Like he likes playing the drums, but he doesn't like uh, Guns N' Roses and Metallica and Pearl Jam and Red Hot Chili Peppers. I've had a hard time finding music that he really digs. Anyway, where this led to was I realized over the weekend that he doesn't feel music in his body. So I play some good music you like. Your body starts to like move, man. Like you, you can't even help it. Your head starts to nod. Your hips start to move. You know, your shoulders are moving with the beat. He doesn't feel that. So one of the things that I've added to my list of, you know, many fatherly, fatherly duties coming up is, okay, how do I get this kid to connect to his body more? It's so easy for me and he doesn't quite have it yet. So it's an interesting challenge. Yeah. Well, I, thanks for sharing that, that story. I mean, I, there's, there's a lot of kids that I see who, who have a similar problem. I mean, that's not even worth going into how we got there, but just... The things that kids are given, you know, the, the kids that are begin, being given cell phones at eight years old, I mean, seven years old, it's wild, man. Um, and that's not to say, you know, my, my kids, speaking of my, my son specifically, he was, he was climbing on my chest the first day he was born. The, the nurses were like, what the hell? What's, he was lifting his head up when he, like within minutes of coming out of my wife. And I was like, okay, he's in his body and he always has been. Nice. His learning curve on the emotional scale of things has been different because he's like, he's like an animal. Like he's got instincts like an animal. He's, he's here to dominate. He's yeah. someone's got something he wants. He, he, when he was three, he would bite him. <laughs> and now he's yeah. a little more clever and refined, but 
still there's that, that emotional piece. The, I, I could see that the uh, empathizing is something he really struggles to do. Like, how uh, do I understand someone else's experience? You know? Yeah. Um, my son's empathy is through the roof. He's such, so loving, so gentle. And it's, it's a funny thing about fatherhood, right? We'll, we'll go into fatherhood and we think that we're going to get a little mini me, a little clone. Okay, we're going to get this kid. And he's going he's gonna to be into everything I am, but like better. And I'm going to make him better than me. That's the mission. <laughs> and then they come out and like they've already got the software long before they get to us. It's, it's amazing. It's really a, a miraculous thing. You, you, don't, you don't really train your kid into who they're going to be. They already show up mostly like pre-templated. And, uh, and that was a struggle for me in the beginning. There's a little, uh, this is a horrible word to use, but it's probably the best, uh, not disappointment in him, but disappointment in like, Oh, this is not you know, what I was expecting. Mm-hmm. And so I, I thought about that for a long time. And then I realized, okay, my actual job is to work with this new human who's been, you know, put into my care for 20 years and how do I support him becoming the best version of him uh, rather than trying to make him the best version of me? How egocentric was that of me in the first place mm. to, to make his life <laughs> about me? Man. Well said. Well said, Selfish. man. Selfish. Well, listen, I'm right there with you. I'll, I'll throw myself under the bus with you. I, uh, I remember telling my wife before my son was born, um, I, I just had these visions of waking up before my wife, I had a vision of her sleeping in and just, you know, coming and grabbing the baby and placing him in my lap and just sitting and meditating as the sun was rising over the hills. And I remember telling my wife, I was like, this is, this is going to be wonderful. We're going to meditate together. I'll teach him how to exercise with me. And oh man, dude, did you, get that, getting that kid to sit still is eight years into the thing is still a challenge, you know? And so it's so funny how the projection that I had of who I need, who he needed to be, to be the best version of me. You're right, man. That's, that's something yeah, that you yeah, do instinctually. Yeah. We, we, we instinctively think we're going to like make, make them a better version of us. Mm-hmm. And to, that's a big part of growing up as a father is realizing, okay, that's, it's not about me at all. Mm-hmm. Like he's on his own path, you know, God sent him here or whatever his thing is. And I'm just here to kind of like support for a little while and try to train him in the basics. And, uh, so now, you know, with some of that understanding, you know, once he got to about 11, I, I stopped, I quit the parent model of, of telling him what to do. Mm-hmm. And I, I moved into a coaching model where now a lot of what I do with him is, okay, he's got a problem. We talk about it. I let him game plan solutions and we talk about it. And then I let him go up and try something. And, uh, my goal is one of my big goals is to still be on good terms with him in his twenties because I was on good terms with my father in my twenties because we just butted heads so much because he, he had a hard time letting go of who he wanted me to be. Right? He made the, that mistake that I was making. And um, we don't have such a good relationship because of that. Uh, I'm hoping that my, uh, my more conscious man, more enlightened approach will get me a better result, but who knows? You never know. That's yeah. what Oh man. Uh, I love that. That's a whole nother podcast episode, but I wanted to circle some back to something while we're on this one here. You said, uh, the real F word is fault. And I really like what you said there. Cause I, I also subscribe to a belief that if I'm not part of the solution, I'm part of the problem. And, and so I put a high value on solution oriented people. And I'm wondering, uh, what's, where's the room for accountability and honor? 
Because I, I do think that it is important to demonstrate responsibility, taking ownership of breakdowns as a function of leadership. So I, I understand not pointing fingers and issuing faults, especially in the moment when there's still something unresolved. But I'm wondering how do you hold accountability and taking account of things so that there's a, for me, it's come back to the word honor. Yeah, I think honor is an internal function. Mm. And I think fault is an attempt to externalize it. Mm. So yeah, fault is the F word. As soon as someone brings that up, I instantly have the opinion that they are in a really low mental state. And um, I want to get, get as far away from that as I humanly can. Uh, when it comes to honor, uh, honor is about living your word, keeping your promises. Uh, oh, by the way, the biggest skill of honor is actually in not making many promises. Mm. Most guys lose their honor because they make too many promises because they have no boundaries. And then they can't keep them and now they're honorless. Uh, I think when it comes to leading a team, yeah, of course, the, the ultimate responsibility for any failure lies with one person, it's the leader. You know, it's, it's, you can't ever blame anyone else. Uh, you know, see Jocko Willink and, um, you know, radical, um, uh, what's the worst word I'm looking for? Um, total ownership uh, of, of, of your team. Yeah, I think the most important thing is finding solutions and then sitting down with your team members and saying, hey, this thing went wrong. Um, as the leader, how can I help you to make sure that doesn't happen again? Mm -hmm. Most people don't want to do things wrong, right? If they do, get them off the team as fast as possible. There are a few people in the world who take uh, deep internal secret pleasure in sacrificing the plans of others, get them as far away as possible. Most people want to be better. So rather than blame, uh, turn it into a coaching session and, and put it on yourself. Say, you know, how, how, how did I let you down as the team member to where we, we failed this? Yeah. And they'll, they'll tell you, number one, they'll probably tell you what they could have done with more from you. Right. Uh, number two, they'll take full responsibility. They'll say, it wasn't you, it was me. I had this going on, that going on. And then it becomes a coaching session. Mm. That's all. Let's, just with the last few minutes we have here, I'm interested in your perspective on the psychology of taking ownership of something. Because I know that that, especially thinking of the community of men that we're both in service to, I think that that's especially millennial generation responsibility is something that I find is 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 not easy to come by. It's not a it's not a built in baked in skill set. So I'm just wondering about the psychology, but the the resistance to take responsibility and what makes it so simple in the example you just gave. Well, let me start actually with the philosophy because I don't think it's a psychology. I think it's primarily a philosophy which a man can adopt or not adopt. Uh, the world is a huge, or the universe is a huge, scary, chaotic, terrifying place. Uh, we are tiny and mostly powerless, which is a terrifying way to live. Life can do all kinds of crazy things to us, external circumstances, and you can live very easily as a victim your whole life. This didn't work out. This person did that. You know, my car wouldn't start. The economy did this. When you're a victim, you're powerless. When you take full responsibility, you're powerful. So whether or not to take responsibility simply comes down to a decision about whether you want to live as a powerful man or not. I understand that sometimes there are things that are not our responsibility, but when you always come from the frame of somehow, somewhere, I caused every single thing that ever happened in my life. And I know people can make arguments that are logical against that. 
But if that is your frame, you instantly have absolute power over your life and your emotions and everything. Uh, so it's, there's some psychology to it, but I think it's a philosophy. I think it's what kind of man do you want to be? Do you want to be a man who's a victim of the universe or do you want to be a man who is making things happen? If you want to make things happen, you have one choice. It's absolute fucking responsibility for everything, everyone, and every, every, every occurrence in your life. The end. And when that's modeled on a team, going back to the context of a team, and the leader of the team is is demonstrating, I'm responsible for everything. Not only does it instill that philosophy in the team members, I think it also makes it safe for men to say, you know what, I can take responsibility for this. There's so much fear around taking responsibility for things and being punished or chastised for it. I think a lot of people have been led to believe that that's actually masculine leadership is punishment and 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 whipping people literally and and metaphorically for their shortcomings or for their mistakes. But I didn't hear you say that once. And you, we talked about masculine leadership for an hour. This, uh, this wanting to avoid blame, not be in trouble, slave mentality. Mm-hmm. Pure slave mentality. Oh, I messed up. If the master finds out, he'll whip me. Mm-hmm. Versus, hey, I messed up. Whip me. Oh, you don't want to? Cool. It's, it's, it's to- a totally different way of living. I mean, you can go back to Nietzsche and uh, master mentality, slave mentality, uh, the funny thing is when you as a leader model responsibility to your team or your kids, funny thing happens. Guess what? They start to also take responsibility because it's, it's, in, it's, it's infective. Um, getting rid of that blame thing is, is powerful. You want honesty from your team. If your team feels that they're going to be punished and blamed and thrown under the bus, they're not going to tell you the truth. If you're trying to lead a team who are telling you things that are untrue, you don't even know if you're on track or not. So cultivating that honesty between your team is vital. And that honesty has to be, you know, uh, created by that responsibility of the team leader. Agreed, man. Oh, so much good stuff here, man. I could talk to you for hours, but I want to honor the time. <laughs> um, before I send you, send you loose, let me ask you a few lightning round questions. You ready? Take, take a deep breath. Yes. Yeah, take a deep breath. <laughs> take a deep breath. Get ready for the lightning. Here it comes. Uh, so what's one thing you've learned in your life that you wish you knew when you were 18? Uh, most people are wrong. Most of the time about most things, listen to yourself. What do you think is the most important value to have as a man? Truth. And last, what does the world need most from men right now? Range. Range. Oh man. I got to ask you a follow up. What do you mean by range? A lot of the world right now is uh, obsessed with being more masculine, which is important. But what I'm interested in is not that. What I'm interested in is masculine range. How hard can you be? Can you kill your enemy without fucking flinching if you have to? And then can you hold a baby in your heart, in your in your hands, and sing him a lullaby? Mm-hmm. How soft can you be? That's range. How how fast can you go from being an absolute destructive motherfucker to painting or writing a poem or being gentle? the range across all your emotions. How, how quickly can you go from calm to angry back to calm? Uh, it, being more masculine just gets you stuck in a particular identity. Uh, being a more complete human being means being able to flow between all your ways of being. That's important. Mm. 
Awesome stuff, Simon. Love hearing what you got, man. Uh, for those people who don't know about you yet, want to come follow you, get more involved with what you're offering, where would you send them? You know, right now, um, I've, I've been away from coaching for a little while, so I'm still in startup phase. Uh, come find me on Facebook, Simon Smart. Uh, nice and easy to find. I put a lot of content up there. Uh, try to do a number of stories per week of just sharing sharing content. Uh, as we move forward, uh, there'll be some coaching programs, live events, and um, do some cool shit to build community and uh, help men to get more in touch with who they want to be, who they are, and cut away all those shackles that hold them back that they just do not need. Love it, man. Well, I tell you what, leave some room on your calendar for whenever you're ready to to launch some of those things you just mentioned out into the world. We'll bring you back here and you can talk all about it. Uh, really great to connect with you, man. Got a lot of respect for how you present and your philosophies. Very resonant with me and look forward to continuing to track your journey further down the road, Simon. Sounds good, brother. We'll, we'll talk again because I think we have a lot of common ground. And I love what you're doing in your community. If I can ever support them in some way, just uh, hit me up, man. Will do, brother. You take care of yourself. All right. All right, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that episode today. Simon's an incredible man, so make sure you go and give him a follow. Look forward to having him back here on the podcast in the future someday. Remember, for everything Rising Man related, make sure you go over to risingman.org. Thank you again for all of your ongoing support. And until next time, rise up and claim your destiny.